Let me pray. Father, I ask that you would show us yourselves, show us ourselves, and show us our Saviour, such that we might love you, that we might love your Son, our Saviour, and the power of the Holy Spirit. And so, Father, tune our hearts to love, and then give us an inward peace, a restfulness about everything for Christ's sake and his glory in this, his church. Amen. Well, like Ken said, we're, we're reaching the end of a, a, a marathon, really. Uh, 14 sermons so far in this one book of 1 John. If you want to flick to the book of 1 John, uh, we might put the page numbers back up if possible. Um, it'd be really helpful if you have a Bible there and have it open there to 1 John chapter 5 because we've reached the pretty well the conclusion. This is the penultimate sermon uh, in the series and what John has been doing is he's been writing to this group of Christians. You would think that a group of Christians who lived 30, 40, 50 years after Jesus, those group of Christians wouldn't have any problem. They wouldn't have any struggle. I mean, they've, they were so close to the life of Jesus. It's, it's harder for us as Christian people living 2,000 years You'd think it'd be a lot easier for Christians 30 years or 50 years after Jesus. That's not the case. Those in the early church, those that John wrote to, struggled. They struggled to trust in Jesus. The world around them didn't trust in Jesus. The world laughed at them for trusting in Jesus. And more than that, there were some in the church who seemed for some time so active, who seemed like really great Christian people. But these people left the Christian faith. In fact, they started making up stuff about Jesus. They started saying that he wasn't who he really claimed to be. And these early Christians were shaken. They were rocked by what had happened, by the world that surrounded them, and by what had happened in this church. And so what John wants to do is write this letter to these Christians who are struggling. They're struggling with doubts. They're struggling with who Jesus is. They're struggling to make sense of Christianity. And if you have a look there, just at the next verse on from our verse, verse 13 of chapter 5, you'll see the reason why John is writing this letter. He's writing, verse 13, these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. See, he doesn't want them just to have a hunch or just wishfully think that they have eternal life. He wants them to know. And so what John's been doing is giving Christian people certainty, certainty in the truths of who Jesus is, what he's done, and how that, how that changes and affects your life. What John wants to do is to reach out in writing this letter to people who are struggling in the first century with Christian faith and people who are struggling in the 21st century with trying to work out what it is to be Christian, and he wants to draw them to faith. He wants to give them assurance He, in fact, wants to give them confidence. This is a word that's come up. We saw it last week. He wants to give them boldness, confidence. 
And so that's why he writes. And what we've seen over the time that we've been looking at this book is John is not an engineer. You know how engineers operate? We've got one up there. And often people uh, operate like this. They operate in a logical progression of an order. Um, So A uh, leads to B, which leads to C. This is a a line. It's a linear progression. But that's not how John writes his book. He writes it not, not as an engineer, A, B, C. He writes it as an artist. And what he does is he just he sketches out, just in light pencil, firstly, what, he, what, he's draw, what he's drawing. And then what he does is with his colours, he keeps coming back. He keeps coming back and adding colour and layering it up, layering it up. And what he does is he uses three colours, three colours that keep coming up again and again and again. You know those masterpieces like... Uh, Um, Has anyone seen a masterpiece like Leonardo da Vinci? Has anyone seen Leonardo da Vinci or Rembrandt in an art gallery? Right. You know, know, and and with those paintings, one of the incredible things is when you see them in real life is is the way that they create depth. I mean, it's just a two-dimensional, but it's got this depth to it. And you know how they do it? They they do it by layering, just paint on paint on paint and paint on paint, and it builds this complexity and this depth. And this is exactly what John has been doing. He's been using three colours and he's just been layering it up. And the three colours, or three strands that we've seen throughout this whole book have been genuine belief, like the importance of who Jesus is and what he's done. The importance of genuine love. There's this social dimension, not just knowing stuff about Jesus, but it matters how we treat one another, and thirdly, genuine obedience. There's this moral um, aspect to it. So John's been layering these colours all throughout the book, belief, love, and obedience. And today what he does is he draws them in and he's going to show us what the purpose of genuine belief genuine love and genuine obedience is because he's going to weave them together to show us what victory is or the victory that Jesus has won. That's our second point there in your outline. If you've got an outline there, here's the victory of faith. Because what John is saying is that Christians have been caught up in a victory and it's a victory that's not uh, come about by our planning and execution. Now have a look at verse 4 of 1 John chapter 5. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. John conceives of being a Christian as being drawn into this battle. And it's it's a battle where the outcome has been won. It's a battle that has already occurred and a victory has been given. It's a victory against the world. Now, when John uses the word world there, he's talking about um, the forces of evil and darkness and sin and Satan and death. And John's saying that we as Christian people, the things that 
work against us. The things that make us weep. The things that make life so hard. The things that we hate. We're doing a funeral tomorrow. And I hate doing funerals. Because death is such an ugly thing. All the things that we hate. All the things that drain us. All those things opposed to who we are as human people. John says there, a victory has occurred. A battle has been fought against those things. And it's a battle that we haven't fought, but it's a battle that we participate in. And we participate at least in the victory of that battle. And how do we participate in that? Well, it's at the end of verse 4. See if you can see how we're caught up with it. Is it because we're able to overcome sin? Is it because we can stare down death? No. How are we caught up in this battle? We're caught up in this battle by faith. See that? See that, those three words? Even our faith. When, when it says even our faith, um, it's probably better understood that is our faith. You see... Jesus has destroyed the works of the devil. You see that back in chapter 3, verse 8. He has overcome the world. And we as Christian people have been caught up in this and we've been born of God to overcome the world. Not because we're so fantastic. Not because we've done amazing things. But we trust in the one who has done them on our behalf, the Lord Jesus. I don't know if... um, Anyone has ever said to you, I wish I had a faith like you? Has anyone ever said that? Put your hand up if someone said, um, I really admire your faith, or I wish I had a faith like you. Has anyone um, had that comment made to them? Yeah, I'm going to put you on the spot. There's a couple of people with us tonight. So um, why, do, why do you think people say that? Why do you think people say... Um, you know, I wish I had a faith like you. Okay, because that, yeah, okay, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Why else? Why, why do you think people might say, um, "I wish I had a faith like you"? Yeah, 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 yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, please. Yeah. And and not only it is a is it a beautiful thank you. Not only is it a beautiful thing, 
it's a thing that often we're unaware of. Um, often, I think, um, we, we can't see what God is doing in our lives. I mean, this is the sad thing. In, in Henry's death, um, I've had the privilege in the last week or so of just hearing from a lot of different people how God has been at work in his life. Now, you know, it, it saddens me that it took his death for, for you know, the full realisation of how God has been at work in his life to, to, to come, uh, to, at least to my mind, because so often um, we can't see what God's doing in our lives. And just as a side point, God says that his Holy Spirit is at work in our lives. That The power that raised Jesus from the dead, the power that will raise Henry one day from the dead, that power is at work in you, in your ordinary lives. And so no wonder people might say, I wish I had a faith like you. But also, I think an aspect of that is um, people see at least the benefit of your faith, that it gives you something to cling on to, some kind of spirituality, something to kind of lift your eyes out of a soulless world, you know, shopping centres and being excited about cars. I mean, I can't believe how excited I get about cars. I mean, if, you know, there's, there's something more. And I think what we see here that is in 1 John, there is something more. And that something more hasn't come from us. People see the benefit of our faith, but what we need to be reminded of is it hasn't come from us. It's come from the one who has overcome, the Lord Jesus himself. And so what John wants to do is remind these Christians who are feeling so buffeted, who are feeling so discouraged, who are feeling so overwhelmed, he wants to kind of take them back to the centre. As he closes this letter out, he wants to take them back to the distinctive, irreducible content of what Christianity is about. We're up to point B there, the fact of the person of Jesus. Have a look there in verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. See there in verse 1, again, it's the language of faith. Everyone who believes, the word there, belief, is exactly the same word for faith or trust. Everyone who trusts that Jesus is the Christ, is born of God. See, what John is saying here, to be born of God is to be a Christian, it's to be welcomed into God's family. And how, how are you welcomed into God's family? By being a very good boy, you too by being an excellent lecturer, by being a fantastic mother, by being an excellent preacher. No. No. What does John say? Everyone who trusts. Everyone who trusts that Jesus is the Christ, is born of God. That's all. That is the way that we come to God. It's through faith in Jesus. And this is the essence of, of Christianity. This is what Christianity is all about. You never move past this reality. It's trust in the Lord Jesus. 
But there's something about the Lord Jesus that's really important. There's something about the Lord Jesus that's really important. You see, as you read the New Testament, the New Testament affirms the historicity of Jesus. What I mean by that is the New Testament recognises that Jesus existed in history. But more than that, there's something far more important than that. The New Testament recognises that Jesus existed as a person in history. We read in the Gospels about Jesus' birth. We read in the Gospels briefly about his childhood, and infancy and childhood. We read about his relationship with his parents and his siblings. Um, in our, throughout the Gospels, quite beautifully and amazingly and uniquely to the New Testament, we read about the emotional life of Jesus, what gave him joy, what made him cry, what meant he couldn't sleep when he was tired. We meet in the New Testament a an historical Jesus, but it's more than just a real figure of history. We meet the person of Jesus. And what John's doing here is he's taking us back to where he started. If you flick back to the very start of this letter, John introduces the basis for which we've come to know Jesus. He says in chapter 1, verse 1, that which we have that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, seen with our eyes, and which we have looked at with our hands and have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. Here's what makes Christianity utterly different to every other religion that our world knows. John is saying that the basis of Christianity is not some nice idea about God, not some very worked out, sophisticated philosophy about God. The basis of Christianity is an encounter with the person of Jesus. When he says that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen, he's saying we heard Jesus, we saw Jesus. Here is an objective encounter. The basis of Christianity is the person of Jesus. Now, that is something that's objectively verifiable. Either he lived 2,000 years ago or he didn't. If Jesus didn't live 2,000 years ago, we can go home and this church is a waste of time. But if he did, and there are very few historians who would dispute that Jesus existed. Very few historians that would, serious historians, would dispute that Jesus has existed. And John says he didn't just exist. We knew him. We knew him up close. We lived with him. We, we, we saw him. We, we interacted with him. We touched him. We heard him speak. See the basis? The basis of our faith is the person of Jesus. And it's the basis of our faith is the apostles' encounter with the person of Jesus. Because what we have here in the, this early church is that people have wanted to make stories up about Jesus for themselves. 
There's some things about Jesus that the apostles taught, that John taught, that they don't like. There's some things about Jesus that they want to, and I won't go into it now, but they, you know, they're just inconvenient and not particularly palatable. They don't like it. And so they start mucking around with who Jesus is. But John wants to take them back. And he wants to take them back to what uh, he saw of Jesus. Because here's, here's, a, here's the interesting thing. You know, you, you think, oh yeah, I mean, it would have been great if I had lived in the first century. It would have been a lot easier to be a Christian back then. Well, these people that John writes to probably hadn't seen Jesus, just like you. These people hadn't heard Jesus, just like you. These people hadn't touched Jesus, just like you. And here John is saying to these people, you've got to come back. You've got to come back to the Jesus that we knew. The, the apostolic Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible. Not the Jesus that we want to make up, but the Jesus of the word of the apostles. Jesus, in fact, prays for the apostles. And he says in John chapter 17, verse 20, my prayer is not for them alone, that is for the apostles. I pray also for those who will believe in me. How? Well, he goes on, he says, I pray for those who will believe in me. How? Through their message. In Jesus' mind, You want to know about who he is? You listen to the apostles. These are the eyewitnesses. These are guys who weren't around 200 years after. You know, we've got lots of, we've got accounts of Jesus' life. Accounts of Jesus' life 200 years after Jesus. It's a bit like me um, thinking that I was, um, I wanted to write a missing piece of Captain Cook's diary. Okay, say there was a month that was just missing. And then I'd read all Captain Cook's diaries and I'd get kind of the way he writes and get his style. And then for that month of September, I start writing it. And I start kind of making it up and putting all the pieces together. We have a lot of versions of Jesus' life like that from 200, 300 years after Jesus was around. But that's not the apostolic Jesus. That's not the word of the apostles. The apostles were, Jesus, were people who encountered Jesus, who lived with him, heard him, were taught by him, and, they've, and we've recorded what they said about Jesus in the New Testament. I pray for those who will believe in me through their message. So Jesus was a real figure of history, but more than that, John wants us to see that there's a meaningful experience of the person of Jesus to be had. Because um, I don't know about you, but uh, when I was in year 10 or 9, I think, we, we had to memorise the periodic table of elements. Did you, you, was it Maybe it was year 8. I don't know when you do that. Who remembers trying to remember the periodic table of elements? Um, something to look forward to, boys. And... Uh, I had no idea why. I, you know, I had no idea. And I knew it kind of was some facts about science, about how stuff worked. But I just kind of had to memorise it. It made very little difference to me. 
Jesus is a fact of history. But he's a fact of history, not like the periodic table of elements that could be true, and is probably is important to some people. Jesus is a fact of history, but he's also someone that we are to encounter, that we are to meet. You see, the apostles met Jesus, and they met Jesus because he was a person. And we as Christian people, we meet Jesus. We meet Jesus through their word, in the power of the Spirit. And we meet Jesus to bring an uh, experiential certainty. Because that's what John wants us to know. He wants us to have faith in Jesus. We've looked at that. He wants us to love like the Father loves there in verse uh, 1. He wants us to be obedient there in verse 2. Um, and he wants us to grow in this faith. He wants us to grow in this faith. And how do we come to faith? How do we grow in this faith? Well, we grow in this faith by the reasonable, um, the validity, sorry, we grow in this faith by the validity of the testimony. And that's what really where John ends up in this section. What, what he's saying here is that, yes, we, Jesus is a person of history, a real human person, a person whom we're to encounter, who we're to meet as we trust in him and hear his word in the scriptures, in the Bible. But we must remember that who Jesus is is ultimately not determined by the apostles. Who Jesus is is determined by God himself. Um, now, some of my kids have reported that when they were in Urala Estate, they saw a killer clown. This is true, isn't it? Saw a killer cr- clown, right? Now, at, at that point, I'm kind of trying to assess the validity of that claim. Um, now, if there were a group of you, if say, for example, all you guys came and said that, you know, in Urala Estate, you saw a killer clown, well, that, that might change things for me because, you know, there might be a, a greater ground for that kind of claim. What's the validity for the claim of who Jesus is? Well, John tells us in the next section, he tells us that the ground of this claim is God himself. God is the one who has testified. Um, The image here is really of a court of law. And this is God's testimony, that Jesus, verse 6, is the one who came by water and blood. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. I think this is a reference to Jesus' baptism in terms of the water. Because what happened at Jesus' baptism in Mark chapter 1, as he came out of the water, we heard, we, we have recorded the voice from God saying, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. See, what we have, the ground of our faith is the testimony 
of God himself. Um, In the ancient context, you needed three witnesses for evidence to be admitted. And here, um, John says, it's the evidence of three, but it's the evidence of what God has put forth. It's the evidence of Jesus' baptism. It's the evidence of Jesus' death and in his blood. And it's the evidence of the work of the Spirit. And all those three come together to testify about Jesus. And for us, this is a testimony of truth. This is a testimony of truth. So to close, let me say this. We have seen that Jesus is a person of history. And so we have a warning here for us today. We don't want to make up our version of Jesus. Okay, Lots of people have a version of Jesus. But you don't want to trust in someone else's version of Jesus. You want to trust in God's version of Jesus. We don't want to trust in a Jesus of our own imagination. We want to trust in a Jesus of the Bible. And friends, you can't be neutral about Jesus. You cannot be neutral, and that's where John ends there in verses 11 and 12. You cannot have life and be neutral about Jesus. Can I encourage you to trust in Jesus because he was a person? Can I encourage you to trust in Jesus because in his life, from his baptism to his death, by the power of the Spirit, we have God's testimony, God saying, this is who Jesus is. And this is the Jesus that we can trust. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that Jesus did walk, was baptised and did die for us. We pray, Father, that you would grow our faith, that you'd grow our confidence in your Son and that we might trust him. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.